0: Good morning. I'm going to them and see if it does not move. Here we go. Most uh, pulpits and podiums that I visit are prejudiced against tall people. And there's always some short person that's been standing there, and the thing is there, or they don't secure it, and I'll put a Bible down, and it just sinks, and then I awkwardly preach for a half hour, trying to lift it up without people noticing, so I'm just going to be thankful that I don't have to be awkward, even though... I'll probably be awkward during my time here. I'm just going to let you know that ahead of time. Um, most churches don't pay attention to the introduction, so let me just introduce myself in the best way that will help you. Um, am I from West Philly? Yes. Same neighborhood as Will Smith? Yes. Have I met him? No. Do I play basketball? No. Have I ever played basketball? No. Why not? None of your business. Um, and no, I don't watch basketball. I don't watch football. I do enjoy playing football. I watch UFC. Um, I think that's all the questions that I'll get asked today. Everything else nobody really cares about. Somebody might say, what's your Twitter handle? And that's it. So we'll, we'll deal with that as the time comes. But, but I will say um, two things. Number one, I know why I'm here. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul would say that he visited a certain church to provide what was lacking. And having met and talked to Logan that I met today. He needs to learn a lot about planting and tobacco products and whiskey. And this is why I'm here, to help him. Um, in church planting, you either have the cigar to celebrate or the cigarettes to cope. And so I'm trying to help you learn about the good stuff in church planting. Um, I'm joking. I'm so glad. <laughs> if Philly, really that would not have gone over well. So I'm really thankful for that. Praise God for Iowa. Um, and on a more serious note, I feel a very real uh heaviness in dealing with this this text and this topic um in preaching the goal is to minimize our opinions and to undress or expose the meaning of the text and there's so much that i want to say and i got up this morning about four and i just start editing stuff um, because i wanted to be able to speak with clarity that which is helpful from the holy spirit and not from my own head. And I feel a certain anxiety right now. Lord, that I take out too much and I add the wrong thing. Uh, and so I'm praying and I solicit your prayers that the Holy Spirit help me to say that which is helpful for all of us and which is edifying. We live in a moment in the church in America where everybody is tempted to add or interpret the text in ways that God did not intend. Uh, we're living in a culture, matter of fact, where the, the temptation is either to move the Bible out of the discussion or to bring it in in a way where we manipulate people to cause you to think and act the way we want them to. And what takes faith is to just say, here's the truth and let the Holy Spirit do what he'll do. And so that's my, my goal. And that being said, we're, we're in Mark 15. I do want to pray. Um, the title of the message is Let Justice Roll Down. If you've been involved in the justice dialogue at all in America, you'll be familiar with this title. So would you just bow to me for a word of prayer? Even now, Lord, I pray that you would come. I pray that you would hollow out this time and convince, convince, and convert to the further from your kingdom. I pray, Lord God, that you would love someone with my words that the words of my mouth the meditation of my heart would be acceptable. On your side alone, Lord, you are my rock. Help me. Think I pray. Christ's Christ name. Amen. For five years, the residents, and citizens of Flint, Michigan, were forced to endure one of the worst public health crises in recent times in America. Beginning in 2014, the Flint City leadership, the powers that be, made the decision to change the source of drinking water, of household water supply from the treated water that came from the Detroit Water and Sewers Department, and they switched it to the water coming from the Flint River. Beginning in 2014, the officials began, or they failed to comprehend the damage and the corrosion that would be caused by bringing in water from the Flint River. The additives and the composition of the water would cause corrosion in the pipes that would loosen and free up lead to to infect and influence the water that was flowing to Flint. As a result of this, and for five years, there was exposure of over 100,000 residents to elevated lead levels, out of that 100,000, we're talking about six to 12,000 children taking in lead poisoning just by having a cup of water. There was an outbreak of the Legionella bacteria, which caused an outbreak of Legionnaires' disease, and it possibly killed up to 12 people in Flint. This will result in 79 lawsuits, several investigations, four resignations out of those leaders, four firings, five suspensions, 15 people indicted and one person convicted. Anytime you want to cause a great deal of harm to a group of people, all you need to do is change the source of the problem. It's true for water, and it's true for truth. Wherever your source comes from that advises you when it comes to justice, when it comes to reform, social change, when it comes to churches and church planting, if we're not careful what the supply is, we will always do harm with the output at the other end. If we're not careful, the church right now in this moment in America has the potential to do great harm, not just to those on the outside, but on the inside with division and manipulation and, and hurtful things that cannot be undone once they're saved. Matter of fact, my title today if you're familiar with let justice roll down, it comes from Amos chapter 5 and verse 24. And, and it reads, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This text is important and has been at the center of the justice dialogue. If you remember, in the 60s, Martin Luther King wrote the letter from a Birmingham jail, and he quoted Amos five twenty-four. And uh, in Mississippi, I believe, Dr. John Perkins, who wrote a book, on his experience with civil rights and how to bring reconciliation to the church, quoted, "Let justice roll down." Matter of fact, that's the name of one of his books. Um, so, at the center of this uh, dialogue, whether it's on Twitter or in the church, we always come back to this idea of Amos five twenty-four, which is telling us that God's heart is for justice. It is in God's heart. It is in, is it in his intention. Hear me out. That justice would come from the people of God that it will flow like streams. But hear me out. There's some things that we church cannot afford to get wrong. Because if we get it wrong, we will pervert them. And the church will do harm to the people that God called us to love, to serve, to preach to, and become agents of redemption to. I know this is Iowa, but y'all are Baptists, so I'm going to look for this amen sometime. I'm going to look for this image game y'all not just good gonna... <laughs> exactly you're not gonna be like hey this black guy came to our church and he was real quiet no 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 we're just gonna do it you don't have to invite me back but there's gonna be some amen there's gonna be some talking if we're baptist we're gonna be Baptist. Pentecostal today if you don't know what that is when you come to philly we have this twisted form of baptist churches where it's kind of pentecostal but really doctrinal we're gonna do that kind of stuff we couldn't do it during the song i was like i'm enjoying it but i can't kind of i didn't see too many hands go up and people didn't cry or nothing so i was like all right I'm going to hold on, but next time I'm just going to let go. But at that point, you can't stop me from coming out. But there are some things we can't get wrong. And here's the big idea. Here's the topic for my message. It's simply this. Because Jesus satisfied God's justice for us, we must be a people who rightly do justice, love mercy, and live courageously. We say that again in my notes. I have it capitalized. Rightly justice. Because you can divide in the name of justice. You can divide a church in the name of justice. So rightly do justice, love mercy, and live courageously. And so our text picks up in, in Mark chapter 15. Mark has this way of, of just speeding through certain events. If you've ever done youth ministry, Mark is probably your favorite gospel. Because you can just get to the core of the message really quick, and it wasn't like Luke or any of the genealogies. Mark is like, here's what happened. It's like a reality show, and then it's done. Um, And so in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples. They all leave him. There's this story of this streaker who was probably, people say was Mark, where they all desert Jesus, and someone gets up and and comes out to see what's going on, and the guards try to seize him, and they rip his robe off, and he is completely stark naked, and he runs. Some people say Mark included that because it was Mark, and that he was stirred in his sleep, wanted to see what was going on, and he ran home completely naked. Imagine how you answer that question. And your mom's like, "What were you doing?" And he's like, "I want to go see Jesus." That's really, really awkward. But he tells us that, and so everyone deserts Jesus. And then we get to the place that Jesus had prophesied to Peter that everyone was going to leave, and Peter was going to deny Jesus by the time the rooster crows. So by the end of Mark 14, not only has Judas betrayed Jesus, not only has Jesus be, been seized, but he has been betrayed and turned away from by all his disciples, and Christ is left standing alone. And so the beginning of the text opens up somewhere around 7 a.m. On, on Good Friday, and Jesus has been bound and brought in, but you have to be really careful when you read Mark. You can't skip too much. It says in verse 1, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him. To Pilate, pilot, but you have to think about it. You have to kind of wrestle with it. How in the world do you bind God? How do we, New Testament believers, read it in such a way that we see that the one who set us free from sin was bound by sin? It's very important how we look at that and how we think of it. And I'll tell you this, if you live in Iowa, you probably won't understand it. You can't get it if you live in Iowa. You can't get it if you live in Philadelphia. You have to travel to a place called Moriah with me. This place called Mount Moriah. And on Moriah this morning, there is a man named Abraham, a very old man, who is going up this mount with his son, Isaac. And Isaac is carrying a bundle of sticks, and they're ascending the mountain, and they're going to make a sacrifice. And Isaac is saying, Dad, where is the offering? And Abraham says to his son, the Lord is going to provide the offering." Um, he doesn't understand. He's about to go on the cookout himself, but, but he's moving up with this bundle of sticks, and he's just trusting his father. He's powerless and he's naive, so he's not exactly like Christ, but there's something there in that picture. And so when we look at that, there's still more to be desired and more to be understood in what's going on in the Bible. But, but next, if you travel with me, there's, there's a man named Samson. You might have heard of him. He dated an Instagram model named Delilah. And Samson has been betrayed. It, it says in the text in the Bible that the Philistine seized him, gouged his eyes out, and he was bound. So that's two different people you see in the Old Testament who were bound. First, there's is Isaac who was bound and laid on an altar on top of wood. But now Samson who was bound and betrayed by his beloved. But then I go forward to the book of Daniel and I see three anger boys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the text says that these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. So these are another set of people who are bound. And, and so all through the Old Testament, there is something that is emerging that goes just beyond that idea that, that God just redeems or that God is just going to come and do justice. Instead, there's this, there's this picture of, of sacrifice and substitution. And so, if you think about it, and you meditate it, and you read your Bible correctly, what emerges is these foreshadowings—a the foreshadowing of the atonement. In other words, Jesus is the true and greater Isaac, who is sacrificed at the will of His Father. In other words, Christ is the lover of the church, and we are the Delilah who betrayed the love of our beloved, and caused Him to be sacrificed. For our sins make His death necessary. In other words, Jesus is the unique Son of God who comes to us in our fiery trials to keep us from being consumed. That's a good place for it, amen. Jesus is the one like we read in Isaiah chapter 53 today. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers are silent. So he opened not his mouth. You've got to see That this Jesus that all of the Old Testament has looked for, that has pointed to, this sacrifice he would make, this good God who's come to make propitiation for our sins, stands in front of Pilate, the highest Roman official in this area, and Pilate is amazed but not transformed. And if you ever want to stand on truth and you want to speak for justice, you have to understand the world will not go along with you. The world will have something to say about what you say, but it won't be good. There's a problem where we change what we do in the church to suit the world, and the world passes from on the back. We should not get along with the world. Now, caveat, we should not be creepy Christians either, okay? We're not a cult. You don't have to put that many bumper stickers on. You don't have to curse the world. And if you just tell the truth, that'll make you unpopular. You don't have to be creepy along with being Christian. Somebody say amen. You don't have to tweet weird stuff. You don't have to repeat what you heard people say on YouTube that you really don't understand. All you have to do is stand on truth and people will be inflamed by it. And so as Christ stands before Pilate, what is important to see is is the text is they accused him of many things. They're accusing Jesus. They're wanting Pilate to condemn him. Pilate says in verse 4, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But verse 5 says, Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Can I submit to you today? That Christ being silent was serving the purpose so that you and I could speak. That what Jesus was doing was connected to mission, and what we should be doing is connected to the same mission. He was silent because he knew what he came to do, and he didn't fuck himself out of it. But you and I in this culture right now are not called to be silent. We are called to be the pillars of truth in the culture. Hear what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So even when I consider justice and how I should engage in the world, the suffering of Christ is a picture, a model, and an example for me. Before we even get to the cross, I'm to suffer like Christ. I'm to endure like Christ. I'm to be unpopular like Jesus. So as we, we look, sometimes we, we miss Christmas exemplar. We're we to be like Jesus to the culture. We're to emulate his faith and his trust in the Father. Let me tell you, faith in Christ produces a type of holiness that gives birth to courage. And I think one of the most lacking and messed up virtues we get in the church is courage. We either shrink back in cowardice or we get a perverted type of courage in which we beat people over the top of the head with a... God does not intend for you to be courageous without being holy. And he doesn't intend for you to be holy without being courageous. In other words, courage without holiness is usually just zeal without knowledge. And holiness without courage is usually just immature piety. You can have the whole library. You can have all the King's Voice sermons. You can have the collection of R.C. Sproul. But if all it does is fill up your study and give you a big fat head and a little heart, you're doing something wrong. Uh, If it's not growing your faith that's leading to action, you're doing something wrong. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. There's a bunch of other scriptures that I could quote to you where the connection is made between the righteous and courage. When God has given you his foreign righteousness and made you right, how could you not be courageous? When the worst thing you could ever deal, which is the wrath of God, has been dealt with in your life. The greatest danger to our society today is not critical race theory. It is the judgment and wrath of God. And so if you have been saved from that and brought into, into God's family, you've been adopted. You should be extremely brave and hopeful because you know that the greatest enemy you ever had is now your father. Amen. There we go. We just got to work through it. It's like a choir rehearsal, okay? We're going to get this right. That's why I got to come back. You know, Sean's not going to do this next week. He's going to go back to being that, that deep, he's got that ASMR voice. But we're going to get there. But if God is our Father, what can man do to you when you receive the love of God? Let that sink in. Because a lot of times when we're on Twitter and we're online and we're talking to people, we get overwhelmed because it's very lonely standing on church. It is very lonely where where many of us find ourselves. I love the fact that most of my friends don't know what I am politically. Because I think if you're a Christian, it should not be that easy to figure out what you are. On every position, I know exactly where you are. Something's wrong there. I think you might have read something wrong. Um, um, I shouldn't be able to figure it out and just say, you just vote down the line, and and, and you haven't thought through none of that, none of the candidates, none of the issues. There should be some things locally that might not, not line up where you are federally. And so, so my point to you is not for you to be more political, for you to be more creative. The courage I'm talking about looks like this. Number one, it's a courage that causes you to examine the motives of not just others, but yourself. And makes you very slow to join a hashtag. And, and I'm just going to, because there's only like three black people here, so I'm just going to be honest. If you're going to deal with pressure from the world why do you tag Black Lives Matter? Why do you tag this one for that one? Listen, if you don't know, don't it. sometimes Christians need to fear to help us know when to shut up. If you don't know, honestly, be slow to speak. It takes courage because everybody lives at the speed of an Instagram post. And everybody wants you to weigh in. And there are times we have to say, I don't know where I'm at on here. There are many issues I still don't know mm-hmm. where I'm at. I know it makes me uncomfortable. I'm wrestling with scripture. This is why I have signals, so I can message Sean and see what he says, and I can just copy his position. It's great. Like, they don't watch his stuff, so I can even plagiarize his sermon. It's completely okay. But that would make a Southern Baptist, so never mind. <laughs> I'm not <gonna> do it. <laughs> but courage, it takes courage to read widely people that disagree with you and you disagree with. That's courage to say, I want to understand where the stand they stand. It takes courage to listen to podcasts where it, it, it ruffles your feathers and it bothers you. Here's courage to refuse to redefine what is being redefined. And to say, here's how the Bible stands." Understand. So that goes back to what I said about hashtags. Some things I'm just going to say this because I think I can. If you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, and I come up with the hashtag, the movement. And most of what they will do and redefine is the family. And so on the one hand, I would say, I am supporting uh, justice for, for African-Americans in an organization by their own words, is not for the African-American family. They are for the dismantling of the nuclear family. I'm using their words. And so what I'm simply trying to say, I'm not trying to bash you. Whatever you hashtag is what you hashtag. But I'm saying in Jesus' name, we need to be careful what you co-sign. Because all the enemy wants is for you to co-sign a little bit of truth with a whole lot of life. And so be, be courageous to stand on truth. Be courageous to live in a way that imitates Jesus' character. Be like Christ in the public sphere. Be like Christ in how you restrain yourself. Be like Christ in how you show patience with people who don't yet believe Tell them to be that. Sometimes we've got to deal with people and they might be immature and they say, I've heard all kinds of stuff. And where I'm at in Philadelphia, I deal with a lot of young, angry, black men. And as soon as I start talking about contemporary issues, they are very angry because they think I'm trying to change them or talk to them about the white man's religion. So I've got to stand back and listen. And it's hard because a lot of what they're saying is false. But if I don't listen, they're not going to hear me out. And so sometimes we've got to earn that right to speak to somebody. By listening to them. And you're saying to yourself, I can't I can't believe he's saying this. Do you know how many people, listen, I, I guess I'm just going to rant. The amount of people I have to talk to and convince that Jesus didn't have blue eyes and blonde hair. Because if you grew up as African American in the 80s, there were three things you had on your wall. Hands down, this is true. If you're in the ghetto at least. A picture of JFK. A picture of Martin Luther King. A picture of white Jesus. And so when you grow up and you start to become more conscious of things, what do you do? You reject that picture of Jesus, and what's happening is people are rejecting the entire Jesus. And they say the Bible is a tool of the white man to enslave us and to captivate us and to control us. And I have to listen so I can speak for that, because normally it's not an intellectual argument. There's hurt surrounded by rhetoric. So we've got to be courageous enough to, to listen. Here's another reason why for our motivation of God, even over their rebellion. Think about when Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2. Listen to what he says in verse 23 about what happened in Mark 15. Peter says, This man was given over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross." If God is deliberate in the suffering of Jesus, He's deliberate right now in between justice in America. He's completely deliberate, and so you need to arm yourself with the mind that the God is sovereign, he is providential, he rules over this, and he will bring him forward. For whatever reason, why he's allowing what he's allowing, I don't know. Many times I think it's because he's getting the fakers out of church. It's not popular to be a Christian anymore. We don't live in like the megachurch prosperity gospel age. I think that's just dead. I think we're at a place where now, if you're a Christian, or if you're biblically Christian, you're unpopular. All the identity cults, all the false Christian movements, they're going to grow, and God's going to strike them just like he did the prosperity possible. I believe that. So here's what God says, Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? If you want to do justice, begin to say that God is for me, and whatever his solution is, supplies the reason. You don't have to look at it as, how, how do I go along and get along with the world? Fight that urge. Resist the urge to be the righteous within your church. Resist the, 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 the urge to not faithfully seek God in hard places. Because God has inserted us for that. And so we see right from the beginning of the text that, that Christ going to the cross is a fulfillment of the Old Testament for Justice would come, not just because the Messiah was going to come and make everything better. If you remember, that's what a lot of Jews thought. The Messiah will come, bam, we got justice, it's all good. This type of two-act salvation some theologians talk about. But instead, what they would see and what they're frustrated with is a 3 act. creation, then it's fall, and then it's redemption. And many in our day are just like the Jews of the gospel, where they're saying, I was born and now I'm looking for God to make me perfect, as though I have no sin to deal with. And so even in our rhetoric when we deal with justice, our goal is not to make people more comfortable. It's not to solve uh, a police reform. Those, those are means, but the end, we seek it for people to work together. So never get that twisted and think, well, we've got, to, we've got to do this, and we've got to get there, and then this is how we know we've reached the finish line. We have less people in prison. We have cops get along with people. We have less inequity. That is not the goal of the mission, I hate to tell you. It is a good thing to pursue. We want to be be able to make sure everybody's okay. I would say we're not even pursuing equal outcomes. We're looking for equal opportunity and fair treatment. But at the end of the day, we get all that good stuff and no one worships Jesus. We're as dangerous as the enemy. We were put here as dead, broken sinners who God took out of the world, breathed into, gave life, put back into the world by the Spirit to keep us holy in such a way that people would say, who is the God you worship? Anything less than that is not mission that's just missing out. We're called to be a peculiar people. When people look at you, they need to see redemption. I think sometimes one of the problems is we don't dwell on our sin and our redemption enough. When I look at my own heart and I see the light that God brought to this darkness, I can totally be persuaded that God can do something about Afghanistan or North Philadelphia where in my city we're approaching 400 homicides. I know at least 20 different families that have lost someone this year. When I was a youth pastor five, six, seven years ago, I have seen some of my own students buried this year because they were in about time. We've lost a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old and a 7-year-old just days ago. And if I didn't believe that this God who could save me can work in this community and is in control, I would lose my mind. Sometimes we need to repent because we think God saving us is just a little thing. He did a big thing when you saved your scandalous self in my scandal itself. And he set us free for a reason. And when you look at that, it should give you hope for anybody else. And if it doesn't, repent because you're getting something wrong. You're getting something wrong. So when we move on in the text, they're calling for Christ to be crucified. Pilate's amazed. And if you skip ahead to verse 10, you see Pilate knows Jesus isn't necessarily guilty. Um, He knows it's because of envy, the powers that be want Christ condemned. And yet they come, they, they come to pilot and verse game. And they say, listen, pilot, listen, you know, it's our, it's our tradition. We want to have a Juneteenth celebration. Um, we want you to let go for us for average. And y'all know what Juneteenth is, right? Okay, because everybody's like, oh, you a permission to laugh. Okay, go ahead. Do you have permission? You got, you got to kind of do it. It's okay. I have a black card in my pocket. Everybody's free to laugh at that one. Okay. And so they come, but they're looking for a literal Juneteenth. And they say, what we want is for you to release Barabbas and condemn Christ in his place. We want you to let the criminal go and put a substitute in his place. So Pilate, who has, if you study history, has always had this antagonistic relationship with the Jew. Pilate was probably the longest-standing Roman governor. He's been there about 12 years. He could have walked him off. He could have said, no, there's so many things he could have done. But he perceived rightly, but acted callously. And a rebuke to many of us, and it is a rebuke to many of our politicians, many people, and hear me out, on the right and the left, see where things go. They see what, what should be straightened out, but because of cowardice, they shrink back from doing what's right. It's not enough to know what you should do. It's not enough to know what's truthful if you do not act. And so he goes to release Barabbas. Who's Barabbas? The name Barabbas actually means son of the father. First name is actually Jesus. So we're dealing with a story with two different Jesuses, two different sons of the father, two different revolutions. There is Christ who's, repeat, or who's preaching this revolution of repentance and times of newness and refreshing from heaven. And then there's this other Barabbas who's saying, listen, we're going to have a protest. We're going to burn this place down. He's an insurrectionist. He, he probably committed murder in, 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 the, in the course of his revolution against the government. And so the people are saying, hear me out, they would rather have a protest and a fire and murder from Barabbas than they would repentance and revival from Jesus. All of us, at all times, always have to pick between two Jesus. Barabbas may be dead, but the spirit of Barabbas is still alive. Do, do we chant and, 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 and crave the the protests that call for riots, here's the thing I never get. We will talk about what happened on January 6th, but we won't talk about what happened in Missouri last summer. We won't talk about what happened in Philadelphia last summer. Now, I'm trying to be equal opportunity. I, I think when the capital city, you know, capital riot happened, black people were just like, that's just their thing. All right. Same thing. And that's fine. And, I- and I'll say that. But you can't look at that as a thing that should be investigated I'm not people burning down their own community for story. I know people who worked for years to establish businesses that were destroyed by people. So I think there's something to say, when you call Congress to account and figure out January 6th, that's fine if you want to do that. What I'm angry about is how many people lost jobs in Philadelphia last year where they just burned down our city. Restaurants that are completely gone, everything just shut down, not just because of COVID, but because of anger, hatred, violence, whatever you, however you want to see it, that's fine but the damage has been done. As believers, we've got to look at both of them as wrong. We've got to be able to condemn sin and be able to say, I might understand how you feel that way, but that is not the way God would call us to do it. And one of the things we've got to start doing is in our own churches, we've got to call that out with other believers and lovingly confront that and love them say, listen, we've got to wrestle through this, but I heard what you said the other day, and it's dead wrong. No one ever helped a black person by throwing a brick for them. And yet we saw... In my city, people of other races bring bricks and other things that could be used as weapons, too. I'm not making this up. You might have saw it on TV. I'm just know what happened in person. Because they're saying, I got to help. Listen, no matter who you want to reach, whether it's immigrants, whether it's blacks, whatever it is, don't look at people as though you're the Savior and you got to lift them up. If Jesus saved you, if we really believe what we see in the text, we need to change how we approach other people. We are not the liberators. We are the ones who have been liberated and we know the chief liberator and we just want to see him you know, use us to bring worship out of other people. Here we go. Amen. <laughs> and so ask yourself, why would they call for Barabbas to be released when he's an in insurrectionist? He's a murderer. Think about that. Jesus is going to preach and kill people. Why would you call for him of all people? And at Christ, I, I listened to a sermon on Barabbas by a civil rights activist named Tom Skinner. It was from New York preached a famous sermon from the early 70s about racism. And he said, about this text, the thing about Barabbas is you can hunt him down. You can kill Barabbas. You could use the justice system and, and put him right back in prison if he called yourself. You can't stop being so This is dangerous. Jesus changes people at the heart. Barabbas changes people at the emotional level, and then they go back to whatever else. And so sometimes we've got to look at things and see it even the way that they saw it. They, they know that Jesus' message was transformed to Christ. I believe that. Study church history. You're feeling like your faith is struggling with what is God doing now. God has done a whole lot of stuff in a whole lot of places over the last 2,000 years and we did He has worked in amazing ways through a message that is folly to many people. He has redeemed, he's shaped cultures, he's shifted things, he has liberated women, he's built orphanages, he's called people to the Protestant Reformation. All of this because of this message we call the gospel. All of this because of the glory of what we call the cross. And so let me say this, as I'm about to close. I want to illustrate something for you to think about. I want to take you to my neighborhood in West Philly where I'm from. I'm going to tell you about Jamal. Jamal's is a young man we've reached and preached to, and he gave his life to the Lord. Believed the gospel. We want to teach him to read the, the Bible. We want to teach him spiritual discipline. Here's the first problem he can't read past the fifth grade level, he doesn't read well. He's also been living in a sinful relationship with a young lady who is not his wife. And now we're telling him, look, you've got to move out. If you want to please God, you can't live in this relationship. And he says, how? I don't have money to, move. I want to I want to give my life to the Lord. I want it to show everybody that I'm living this way, but I need a job. So what do we got to do now? We want to disciple them. We got to walk with them through all these different things. So we, we help him so he can rent a room. renting a room, $75 a week. But he says, I want to find a job. But the issue in our city is, most of the entry-level jobs that 15 years ago, you could have got with a GED. Now you got to have a bachelor's degree for it. So now the, the standard has been raised without, the pay hasn't been raised, but but here's a young man we want to help, but he's saying, I want to work, I want to be able to do this, so finally we look around, and we're able to help him find a job, finally, but now he needs a pass. he needs to be able to catch the bus, he needs clothes to wear to his job, so we're trying to help him, he gets his first paycheck, but before he can tie to the church, he gives 9% to the eighth check cash in place on Baltimore Avenue, because they charge for cash of your check, and then he wants and got a payday loan because he figured he could get everything he needs. But a payday loan charges 300% interest. And there's one everywhere in certain cities. And then he has relational problems with his girlfriend, and we're trying to work it out because we don't want him to lose custody of his child. But she resents him and the church now because he left her, and he's saying, I'm going to be here for you, but we've got to do this the right way. We've got to get counseling. We've got to get married if we're going to be together. And so now she won't let him see his son. So now we have to move the ministry around. We have to pull resources. Maybe he can stay in someone's house for a while. Maybe we can pull money to help him rent a room. But now we got to cancel elders meetings on Wednesday nights because we need to have a family court because we don't want believers taking each other to court. So now we need to shift the ministry so that we can help all of these different families where they're broken and they have baby mama drama. So what do we do? We can't just send them off to the court system. We're going to dedicate Wednesday nights to help them work through issues in custody and we'll write out custody agreements. And if there's a problem, they can call an elder, or they can call a deacon. But, but here's what I, I, I want to ask you. At what point do we deal with the issues with the check cash in place and the 300% interest rates for charging at, at the payday loan? But what do we do about the, the HR policy that says you've got to have a bachelor's degree to make $16 an hour? Those are issues of justice that we want to deal with because we want to make sure all people can thrive. In the 90s, we were pushing and saying we've got to get We've got to get our inner-city students to graduate high school, and then we dump 10, 15, 20 years later. We've we got to raise the standard for the same work and just a little bit more pay. I think there's something wrong with that. But if we do all those things because we want to help them all because we're black, we just miss the gospel. Not only did we miss the gospel, but we just substituted ourselves for Jesus and saying, here's who I choose to love with the resources, the time, and the capabilities of my church because we've got to show that we helped one of them. You can remove Jamal and add whoever you want to that picture. As soon as we, listen, when we approach Jamal, we approach him because we were all a bunch of therapists who set free by now. The way the atonement informs how we do justice is we see all of ourselves as broken, reckless sinners who were dead, who God made live, and now we serve and are motivated for people to come to Christ. And we want to see them thrive for God's sake, not justice's sake. Not for the sake of an Instagram photo. Not for the sake of a TikTok video. And, 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 and I think some of you are going to say, there's no Jamal's out here. I know. i am driven around. <laughs> there's not Jamal's, but there's a lot of poor people. Let me tell you how. You might want to write this down. There's four types of poverty. If you study poverty, there's four types of poverty we all have to deal with. Number one. Poverty of stewardship. That's where there's lacks of resources or people who are not faithful with the resources they have. You can make six figures a year and live in poverty. But then there's poverty of community. There are people who, who are fine financially, but they are so broken mentally and emotionally that they can't relate to other people. They are isolated. They live in such a way, even the architecture of maybe our, uh, our new neighborhoods isn't even built where you can come out front and sit on the stoop with anybody anymore poverty of community. But then next, there's poverty of being, where a person's sense of self is not determined by God, but instead it's shaped by this self-love movement, where I am wonderful and I am just born perfect and God loves me just as I am. That is a lie. And lastly, poverty of spiritual intimacy, being with God in such a way that it changes every aspect of your life. I see you in, in Iowa, in Waukee, wherever we are right now, in Des Moines, they're poor for everybody in the And so when you leave here, whether you're at Starbucks, whether you're at the mall, whether you're at the IMAX, think people are like the mall. Because the moral proximity for you is right here. You don't have to leave home and come to Philly and say, I want to play in the church because we've got to help those kids, we've got to help the little black kids. That's wrong. If God calls you to it, that's great. You've got to work to do here. We've got to work to do in Philly. Can we work together? Yes. So we've got to determine, I'm going to do this for Christ. This is how the cross shapes how we do justice. How we do it, why we do it, where we do it. When Jesus comes, he comes to us and he speaks and calls us out like in Acts chapter 13. All of us should aspire to know, here's what God has called me in my life. Not, here's what the culture has called me. Here's what the culture has told me to do. Last exhortation Number one, guard your heart against moral indifference. Pilate was indifferent to, to morality. He was indifferent to truth. He was indifferent to justice. He denied Christ justice because he wanted to get along with the crowd. Ask yourself, am I pleasing God or am I pleasing people? I know a lot of preachers who have compromised their whole because It's scary because how are they going to get paid if the elders don't like what they're saying? Close this way and I'll pray. I joined the U.S. Army in 1999. And my grandfather, every man in my family, had pretty much been in the military. My grandfather had been in the Air Force in the 50s during the Korean War. And all his life until he died, my grandfather had a wound that was from the front of his head to the back. And it's really tell the story that when he was in training, he talked back to a white man, a white NCO, And the NCO picked up a stick off the ground, and smashed his head. And so he slipped back. In. And so because of that, and he stayed in the military for a year. But he had to bring it all And I remember I saw him to, like, in Portugal, Oklahoma. It's like June, 1999. It's hot. I hate it. They're yelling at me. I'm really getting upset. And I'm telling my grandfather, I can't stand it here. I'm going to hit somebody. I swear I'm going to go off. And I'll never forget. I, I remember, like, yesterday, he says, I know if I can make they hit me, and I know they're never going to. The best thing they will ever do is yell at you and scare you and they can't touch you. Because the military had changed by that point. It changed because a lot of people like him endured and spoke out against what they went through. And the same way God is saying to some of you today, while you're worried about what the culture is going to do with you, what the enemy is going to do, if you stand up for biblical justice and biblical truth, and Christ is going to save you, Look at my wounds. They broke me. They're never going to break you. The enemy is never going to break you. He's never going to be able to send you to hell because I took God's bath on the cross for you. You go be brave and do what I thought you to do Because I took it all. Be brave to do justice rightly. Love mercy. Be compassionate. Be all those things. But just to roll down from your phone. I'll make sure it shows everything. Over. But done.